You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lesson 6, What John Paul II Inherits. Let's begin reading. Redemptor Hominus. The very first line reads as follows. The Redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. It's hard to get past that line. It violates too many modern assumptions. He refuses to knuckle under to the dictatorship of relativism. Jesus Christ is the center of history, period. He refuses to be bullied by scientism and retreat to emotivism or symbolism of faith. Jesus Christ is a fact, a reality. His Redeemer liveth, and this fact, this reality, this man, Jesus Christ, is the key to human existence. That is the self-confident beginning of this encyclical. And the philosopher Pope is going to start out grand, occupying the stage that is his. It's a very fine opening intellectual gambit, and he will defend it strongly and explain it ably in this encyclical and throughout his entire pontificate. I would call this his mission statement. In his second encyclical, the cross also stands at the center of history as a sign of divine mercy. He will continue this theme. But now that he has our attention, now that he will make his serious intellectual mark, he then shows us his heart. The second line, he says, to him go out my thoughts and my heart in this solemn moment. The moment is solemn because of the impending date of the year 2000, the celebration of the second millennial birth of Christ. John Paul II steps into the papacy following that of John Paul I, who served only 33 days. And now this bold man, Carol Wotiwa, now Pope John Paul II, looks confidently ahead to a point 21 years in the future. He knows he has a mission. He's been given a task. He understands the connection spanning near 20 centuries going back to Peter. But now he must carry on the work of Pope John XXIII, also now declared a saint and Pope Paul VI, John Paul's own mentor and guide. They have brought the world to a threshold, the church to a threshold, from which he will continue. On the year of the great jubilee, will bring faith in the Redeemer of man into greater focus. The event will recall and reawaken in the faithful, he says, an awareness of the key truth of faith. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. Here we have the incarnation and the passion of Christ. That is what is at the center of history and the center of the universe. Now, in light of what I said in our previous lesson, about the implementation of Vatican II to deepen our awareness of faith 
I think you can see what he is suggesting here, that our awareness of the significance of the Incarnation and the redemption is an ongoing task for Christians at all times. But in order to renew the Church, particularly after Vatican II, and for Christians to contribute to the challenges of the late 20th century into the new millennium, as called for by the Second Vatican Council, this will certainly take a deeper and a more exquisite awareness of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished in his life. The new Pope also lays out, in addition to this, what should accompany this deepened awareness would also be new attitudes. This is what he said in his book, Sources of Renewal for the Implementation of Vatican II. With our deepened awareness, we should also have an attitude of expectation and joy. We should see a new advent. This is because in considering God's loving plan, the act of redemption is the high point where God entered the history of human beings and as a man became an actor in that history, he says. And through the incarnation, he says in section 2, Jesus gave human life a dimension that God intended man to have from the beginning, but which was lost through sin. And if we consider the errors of the human intellect and will and heart throughout the course of time, he says, we can rejoice that Christ is our Redeemer and that we have been given such a great Redeemer. Now into section 2, he explains the significance of his name, John Paul II. He is following the example of his predecessor, John Paul I. So he expresses his love for the unique inheritance left to the Church by St. John XXIII and by Pope Paul VI. He explains that he will develop the inheritance that they gave to him. So again, although he stands in continuity with the entire line of successors to St. Peter, he feels an immediate bond with John Paul I Pope John XXIII, and Pope Paul VI. For the task, he says, he relies on the promise of Jesus to the apostles, that after he goes away, he will send the Spirit of Truth who will bear witness to Christ. That same Spirit of Truth will guide you into all the truth. So that's how he's setting out in this encyclical and his papacy in the spirit of truth following John XXIII and Pope Paul VI. It is interesting to see that John Paul II goes right to the Gospel of John and finds the three passages on the spirit of truth. So he proclaims, I entrust myself fully to the spirit of truth. The significance of these opening passages escaped me for years as I read this document but when I read Fides et Ratio, Ex Corde Ecclesia, we understand the bold proclamation of truth is empowered from on high. In his encyclical Fides et Ratio, he says, 
that Catholic witness will match the parousia of faith, that is, the candid or bold and forthright speech as the apostles spoke boldly. And that'll be matched with a boldness of reason. That's Fides at Ratio 48. 48. So here he is enacting this role right at the start. If we were to jump over to Excorde Ecclesia, we find a very similar opening idea. He says, aided by the specific contribution of philosophy and theology, university scholars will be engaged in a constant effort to determine the relative place and meaning of each of the various disciplines within the context of a vision of the human person and the world that is enlightened by the gospel and therefore by a faith in Christ, the Logos, as the center of creation and of human history. That is section 16 of Ex Corte. I think that passage sets up a very bold vision of the university following the vision of Cardinal Newman, but lays out an even more radical approach to university and education that has not been seriously attempted yet. It's not a recipe for tepid efforts at integration or soft or vague interdisciplinary studies. Christ must stand at the center of creation. Scientism is not an option. He stands at the center of history. Relativism is not an option. So we will return to this theme of the rich inheritance that John Paul takes to himself now in Redemptor Hominus. It strikes very deep roots in the awareness of the church as a new way, a new way that is laid out by the Second Vatican Council, not new doctrine but a new appropriation of the Spirit, the theme of Lumen Gentium, that the Church is a mystery prior to being a sociological entity. It is a being both human and divine, just as her Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So to absorb this truth, to live the truth, leads to renewal, this deepening of consciousness of the great mystery of the Church and her members. He does like that word consciousness or awareness in relating oneself to God in the world so that the church will fathom more and more deeply her divine mystery, her human mission, and even her human weakness. That's in section three. Now again, just that harkens back to his role as Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow in implementing Vatican II that this consciousness or self-awareness of the church and the Christian is not a self-centered reverie or a, an absence to the world, but it's a discovery, a rediscovery of our love for God and man in the Holy Spirit. That's why he finds those passages on the Holy Spirit. It's part of the call to holiness. It leads to the task of evangelization. There is no better place then, he says, to start than by turning our thought and hearts to the Redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, the center of the cosmos and history. In this document, John Paul expresses the notion that what the Spirit says to the Church through the Vatican Council 
is that we are led to a more mature solidity, he says, for the whole people of God, all aware of their salvific mission. Now, Pope Paul VI wrote his first encyclical on the theme of awareness of the church, the self-awareness or consciousness of the church. It's entitled Paths of the Church or Ecclesium Sua. Not surprisingly, then, John Paul II says he links himself with this document as he inaugurates his pontificate. The first encyclical of Paul VI he identifies with. Why? Well, this is John Paul's first encyclical, but most of all because the church must be supported by the Holy Spirit in its awareness of the divine mystery and divine mission. He says this consciousness or awareness of the church is the first source of the church's love. Now, this is what Paul VI laid out in his encyclical. The mystery of the church reveals the splendor and beauty of the church. According to the Vatican Council, the church is the sacrament or sign and means of intimate union with God and of the unity of mankind. Paul VI showed and taught us an intrepid love for the church. Paul VI talked about, he divided this, his first encyclical, into awareness of the church, Renewal of the church in light of our awareness of our mission and dignity, and then a consideration of our mission. The importance of the church for salvation, to bring the church and mankind together in a dialogue, that was Paul VI encyclical. John Paul says, yes, we need a universal openness to the world that goes with the church's consciousness of itself in order to reflect its apostolic and missionary dynamism, the desire to proclaim in its integrity the entire whole truth of Jesus Christ. Here's how we carry on the dialogue of salvation. This is the program of Pope Paul VI pontificate. He was keenly aware of her mission and service to humanity. And that is what strengthened him against all the critical attitudes and complaints and dissent within the church, which John Paul says was sometimes due to a lack of love, perhaps not always. John Paul says, yes, criticism has its place, but it has a just limit or it will not be constructive. It could obscure the truth, love, and thankfulness for the grace we receive through the church. So John Paul says that criticism shouldn't be an easy shot that avoids, avoids service and acknowledgement of our gratitude for the church. So he expresses his gratitude for Paul VI for keeping the church on the right track. As a helmsman in choppy waters, he kept the church on its course. So John Paul says he, he criticizes now what is the thoughtless criticism after the council. And we will resist novelties that were inflicted upon the church because we must be more discerning and more intent on the mystery of the church. Here we see the first idea of the reform of the reform that comes with this new pontificate and expressed by Cardinal Ratzinger. 
And we also shouldn't forget that Cardinal Wotiwa preached a retreat to Paul VI and his papal household entitled A Sign of Contradiction, in which he encouraged the Pope to stand fast in the defense of truth, and just as our Lord was called prophetically a sign of contradiction, so too would the Church be in the modern world a sign of contradiction. He then makes reference to Paul VI's exhortation on evangelization. He thanks his predecessors who set in motion a new surge of life for the Church, which he says is stronger than any of the doubt, dissent, collapse, or crisis that he inherits in 1978 as he becomes the Supreme Pontiff. He also was inspired by Paul VI's personal example of ecumenical outreach. He sought unity with other Christians without being discouraged. We need to go further down that road. John Paul went very far down the road, as we know, and he would always say that negative results should not lead us to turn back. It should not lead us to an easy indifference but it does require that we open the church to dialogue, to draw close to being available for dialogue, having a firm head but a soft heart. He also pursued dialogues with non-Christian religions. He said, it's a noble thing to make an attempt to understand others, acknowledge what is right and true in other cultures and religions. And this doesn't mean we lose certitude about our own faith, and certainly not to weaken the principles of our moral life. So this opening of the encyclical establishes the inheritance and threshold from which John Paul II will launch his new pontificate, the deepened awareness of the Church, the call to evangelization, which he learned from Pope Paul VI, must lead the new Pope to deepen our awareness of Christ as the Redeemer of man. These reflections that Pope John Paul II makes about his predecessor, Pope Paul VI, who was a mentor to him, as well as St. John XXIII, do make this in a way, his most personal encyclical. When Cardinal Ratzinger was writing about John Paul's encyclicals in his book, it's been gathered into the book, My Beloved Predecessor, he says the following, the first encyclical, Redemptor Hominus, is the most personal, and it is the point of departure for all the other encyclicals. It would be easy to demonstrate that all of the later themes are mentioned here. Many of these themes we will pick up throughout the document and come back to. So I won't list them all, but he goes on to say here that the Pope's personal involvement and his hope, even his profound desire that the Lord will grant us a new day of faith and fullness of life, a new Pentecost. It's no less than a new Pentecost that Cardinal Ratzinger sees. 
in John Paul's invocation of the spirit of truth and his closeness and his devotion to the Holy Spirit. He will say this line will burst forth the present-day church. This is John Paul II. The present-day church seems to repeat with ever greater fervor and with holy insistence, come Holy Spirit, come. So this combination of faith and reason and the appeal to the Holy Spirit, we must keep in mind as we go through the document and look at its theological anthropology and look at the philosophical ideas with which he fashions his account of the importance of the Redeemer of man. Cardinal Ratzinger also thinks it significant that we think about John Paul's retreat, the retreat he gave to Pope Paul VI. He says the following, during the retreat that he preached as Archbishop of Krakow in 1976 to Pope Paul VI, he recounted how during the first years after World War II, the Polish Catholic intellectuals had initially sought to refute, contrary to the official doctrine of Marxist materialism, the absolute dominance of the material. But very soon the center of the debate shifted. It was no longer a question of the philosophical basis of the natural sciences, important as they may be, but rather of anthropology. This is from Cardinal Ratzinger explaining why his first encyclical that we see from John Paul II is on Redemptor Hominus. It is about the mystery of man and the mystery of Christ. To continue reading Cardinal Ratzinger, the question has become, who is man? The anthropological question is not a mere philosophical theory about man, but it has an essential character, and behind it lies the question of redemption. How can man live? Who has the answer to the eminently concrete question about man and human existence? Who can teach us how to live? Materialism, Marxism, or Christianity? The anthropological question is therefore a scientific and rational question, but at the same time, a pastoral question. How can we show people the way of life? And how can we make it clear to non-believers as well that their questions are our questions? And that in the face of man's dilemma, both then and now, Peter was right when he said, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Philosophy, the pastoral ministry, and the church's faith all merge in this anthropological dynamic. End of a long quote from Cardinal Ratzinger, but again, I think very useful for us to reflect upon. That John Paul II's first encyclical is on what it is to be human, and not on some other topic. Many popes have made their first encyclical on a topic pertaining to the relation of church and state, and to challenge the state in their abuse of power. John Paul II will do that in this encyclical, 
as we will see, particularly in his teaching on rights. Or as we know, Pope Paul VI began his, his pontificate with an encyclical on the church. But John Paul II, in that struggle with the Marxist, came to see how strategically important would be the question of what it is to be human. That's where he focused his philosophical work, writing The Acting Person. That is where he focused his pastoral ministry as a priest and bishop, always caring for the dignity of the person and looking for ways in which he could educate and protect and develop the life of the person. And all of this, of course, in the context of a very aggressive rival, the Marxist regime, which dominated the media in Poland, which controlled education, which tried to marginalize the church. John Paul II saw that the way to fight it is obviously prayer and to live the life of the church as we are called to live in the spirit and by the sacraments and in service, which we'll see him explain at the end of this encyclical, but to focus our intellectual and pastoral focus on what is it to be human? How does one find the flourishing of the person? That's why he turns to this theme. But as Cardinal Ratzinger reminds us here, this is more than a philosophical debate. It does involve philosophy. But it's more than a philosophical debate because it involves the concrete person. It takes up issues about where people live. It takes up the issues of where we are in the present historical day and struggles with the problems that affect all human beings in their daily life, in their human hopes and aspirations. So in order to answer that, philosophy must be guided by and work with the theological anthropology, or to even be more concrete. John Paul II referred to this encyclical as expressing calls to the intellect, will, and heart made by Jesus Christ. So just to reiterate that point in the very second line of the encyclical, that he himself turns his heart and his mind to Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of man, we will see that he combines that very great pastoral concern for each human person and now as the universal shepherd of the church, the supreme pontiff, a concern for the entire church, a concern for all of mankind. But the root of it will be faith in Jesus Christ. And it's that faith which must be deepened throughout the church 
and it's that faith which must be proclaimed to the world. And he spent his pontificate doing just those things. This encyclical is its basis. And as we'll have further opportunity to explore those key passages, I'll just remind you of that guide his whole work from Gaudium et Spes 22 and 24. I'll repeat them again because it's always worth remembering these, and I hope you listeners will commit these to heart as well. From Gaudium et Spes 22, that Christ has revealed man to man himself and made his supreme calling clear. That is really the guiding principle here. That if we want to know what it is to be human, philosophy will take us only so far, but we must look to Christ to understand what it is to be a full man, a man, heart, head, willing hands to work, but most of all, of course, to learn the way of the cross and the nature of love which finds its perfection in a sacrifice of oneself for others and for God. And that's what leads to the second passage about what it is to be human, and that is from Gaudium et Spes 24, when he says that the human being is the only creature that God has created for itself, that he cherishes for who they are, and then he says, we then learn that the human being, the human person, discovers himself only through a sincere gift of oneself. That law of the gift, as George Weigel calls it, or in the theology of the body, the notion of the very nuptial meaning of the body as we come to see that we need to exist as gift from one to the other, and that the very standard for this and the deepest empowerment of this we receive from the Holy Spirit who brings us into that Trinitarian life that we see in Christ on the cross, <clears throat> whereby there is the mutual outpouring of love between the Father and the Son, and we are called to participate in that love. So as we now go on to explore these themes and see how John Paul II relates the mission of Christ, the significance of his life and death, to the challenges and problems of the modern world, and the call to renew the church in light of this faith. I think we now have our foundation in place and we can go on to the next sections. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.